In this episode of Rendition, let's play Pretend. This is Rendition, a modern retelling of timeless stories. Each week, you'll hear a medley of folk tales, ancient parables, and classic short fiction. We'll take this tour through folklore, literature, and the arts to reveal the fundamental themes that are still being reused today. Because the world has changed, but the human story remains the same. Kurt Vonnegut, the brilliant yet troubled author, once said, We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful what we pretend to be. It's one of my life philosophies that everyone is clueless. No one knows anything. As a kid, we all think that our parents have life figured out, and they do have some guidelines, but we're in a hurry to grow up, anxiously waiting for the moment when we have it all figured out, just like our parents did. Until we realize that they never had it figured out either. Neither do any of the other adults that share this earth with us. They're just as clueless as we have been. Everyone's flying by the seat of their pants this whole time. So, back to my philosophy. If everyone is indeed clueless, and no one knows how this wacky world really works, this means people's perception of you is grossly influenced by what you tell them they should believe. This brings us back full circle to the Vonnegut quote. We are what we pretend to be. Pretending to be something we're not can be a really dangerous thing. It could get us into a lot of trouble, as we'll see in a little bit. But sometimes, it's really the only way to get out of a sticky situation. For example, the Notorious B.I.G., or Biggie as he was also called, made a song with a great story about this specific type of thing. The song, not surprisingly, is called I Got a Story to Tell. He's hanging out with his boys, drinking, and as we boys tend to do, he starts bragging about getting into and right out of trouble. In the story, through his charm, he's able to pick up a gorgeous woman. And this woman happens to drive an expensive car, a Mercedes 500. Now, back in 1997, this was the car for showcasing social status. He's curious about what she does to afford this kind of car, but he plays it cool. He leaves his boys behind, gets in the car with her, and she drives him to her apartment. That night in the apartment, he finds out that she is the girlfriend of an NBA player for the New York Knicks. Oh, and let me give you a quick sidebar. John Starks, who used to play for the Knicks in real life, confirms that there is some truth to this story, but he never said which of his teammates were involved in the story. Until, finally last year, it was confirmed on ESPN by Fat Joe that the player in the story 
was none other than Anthony Mason. May he rest in peace. But back to our story. Biggie is in this woman's apartment. And I don't have to say much else except that they got busy. But and this is where things get really juicy. In the middle of this little escapade, the basketball player returns home. Biggie and the woman are in the master bedroom upstairs when they hear him say, Honey, I'm home from downstairs. Now, Biggie's nervous. The dude is 6'5 and an athlete, so fighting a fair one is out of the question for Biggie. Biggie warns her that he'll have to use his gun if he gets caught. The basketball player is coming up when the woman all of a sudden yells, Honey, get me something to drink, which buys them a couple extra minutes. Now Biggie's mind is racing, trying to find a solution. And all of a sudden, the answer hits him. He gets dressed quickly, asks her for her scarf, puts it over his face, grabs a pillowcase and rope, then ties her up. When the boyfriend comes into the room, he sees the girl tied up and Biggie pointing the gun at him. The situation left Biggie no choice but to pretend to be a robber. The basketball player drops a drink and screams, Don't shoot! Don't shoot! I'll give you the money, just don't shoot! He then proceeds to lift up part of the carpet and take out money that he had hidden in the floor somewhere. A hundred thousand according to the story. Biggie puts the money in a Prada bag and leaves. Then he calls his friends, asking them to come over. He now has a story to tell them. This little plot device about pretending to be something or someone you're not, that's the theme for this episode. You'll hear two stories today about someone who assumes a fake role and the consequences that come of this. Up first, we have an old Muslim tale from Iran. This is a slightly adapted rendition of Aaron Shepard's version, which I'll link to in the show notes. It's a cautionary tale but also one with a hopeful message about the power of human ingenuity and just plain old dumb luck. The story is called 40 Fortunes. Once in the royal city of Isfahan, there lived a young man named Ahmed, who had a wife named Jamel. He knew no special craft or trade, but he had a shovel and a pick. And as he often told his wife, if you can dig a hole, you can always earn enough to stay alive. That was enough for Ahmed, but it was not enough for his wife, Jamel. One day, as she often did, Jamel went to the public bath to wash herself in the hot pool and chat with the other women. But at the entrance, the woman in charge told her, You can't come in now. The wife of the king's royal soothsayer is taking the whole place for herself. Who does she think she is? protested Jamel. Just because her husband tells fortunes? But this changed nothing. So she returned home, fuming the whole way, as you can probably guess. That evening, when Ahmed handed her his wages for the day, she said, Look at these few measly coins. I will not put up with this any longer. Tomorrow, tomorrow you will sit in the marketplace and be a soothsayer. 
Jamel, are you insane? said Ahmed. What do I know about fortune telling? You don't need to know a thing, said Jamel. When anyone brings you a question, you just, you know, you throw the dice and mumble something that sounds wise. It's either that or I go home to the house of my father. So the next day, Ahmed sold his shovel and his pick and bought the dice and the board and the robe of a fortune teller. Then he sat in the marketplace near the public bath. Hardly had he gotten settled when there ran up to him the wife of one of the king's ministers. Fortune teller, you must help me. I wore my most precious ring to the bath today and now it's missing. Please tell me where it is. Ahmed gulped and rolled the dice. As he desperately searched for something wise to say, he happened to glance up at the lady's cloak. There he spied a small hole and showing through the hole a bit of her naked arm. Of course, this was quite improper for a respectable lady. So Ahmed leaned forward and whispered urgently, Madam, I see a hole. A what? asked the lady, leaning closer. A hole, a hole. The lady brightened. Of course, a hole. She rushed back to the bath and found the hole in the wall where she had hidden her ring for safekeeping and forgotten it. Then she came back out to Ahmed. God be praised, she said. You knew right where it was. And to Ahmed's amazement, she gave him a gold coin. That evening, when Jamel saw the coin and heard the story, she said, You see, there's nothing to it. God was merciful on this day, said Ahmed, but I dare not test him on another. Nonsense, said Jamel. If you want to keep your wife, you'll be back in the marketplace tomorrow again. Now, it happened that on that very night at the palace of the king, the royal treasury was robbed. Forty pairs of hands carried away forty chests of gold and jewels. The theft was reported the next morning to the king. Bring me my royal soothsayer and all his assistants, he commanded. But though the fortune tellers cast their dice and mumbled quite wisely, not one could locate the thieves or the treasure. Frauds, cried the king. Throw them all in prison. Now, the king had heard about the fortune teller who had found the ring of his minister's wife. So he sent two guards to the marketplace to bring Ahmed, who appeared trembling before him. Soothsayer, said the king, my treasury has been robbed of 40 chests. What can you tell me about the thieves? Ahmed thought quickly about 40 chests being carried away. Your majesty, I can tell you there were... Forty thieves. Amazing, said the king. None of my own soothsayers knew as much. But now you must find the thieves and the treasure. Ahmed fell faint. I'll do my best, your majesty. But, but it will take some time. How long, the king demanded. Uh... Forty days, your majesty, said Ahmed, guessing the longest he could get. One day for each thief. A long time indeed, said the king. 
Very well. You shall have it. If you succeed, I'll make you rich. If you don't, you'll rot with the others in prison. Back home, Ahmed told Jamal, You see, you see, the trouble you've caused us? In 40 days, the king will lock me away. Nonsense, said Jamal. Just find the chest like you found the ring. I tell you, Jamal, I found nothing. That was only by the grace of God, but this time, this time there's no hope. Ahmed took some dried grapes, counted out 40, and placed them in a jar. I'll eat one of these grapes each evening. That will tell me when my 40 days are done. Now, it happened that one of the king's own servants was one of the 40 thieves, and he had heard the king speak with Ahmed. That same evening, he hurried to the thieves' meeting place and reported to the chief. There's a fortune teller who says he will find the treasure and the thieves in 40 days. He's bluffing, said the chief. But we can't afford to take chances. Go to his house and find out what you can. So the servant climbed up to the terrace on the flat roof of Ahmed's house and he listened down on the stairs that led inside. Just then, Ahmed took the first grape from the jar and ate it. He told Jamel, that's one. The thief was so shocked, he nearly fell down the stairs. He hurried back to the meeting place and told the chief, this soothsayer has amazing powers. Without seeing me, he knew I was on the roof. I clearly heard him say, that's one. You must have imagined it, said the chief. Tomorrow night, two of you will go. So the next night, the servant returned to Ahmed's roof with another of the thieves. As they were listening, Ahmed ate a second grape and said, That's two. The thieves nearly tumbled over each other as they fled the roof and raced back to the chief. He knew there were two of us, said the servant. We heard him say, That's two. It can't be, said the chief. So the night after that, he sent three of the thieves and the next night four, then five, then six. And so it went till the fortieth night when the chief said, this time I'll go with you myself. So all 40 thieves climbed up to Ahmed's roof to listen. Inside, Ahmed gazed at the last grape in the jar, then sadly took it out and ate it. That's 40, the number is complete. Jamel sat beside him and gently shook his hand. Ahmed, during these 40 days I've been thinking, I was wrong to make you be a soothsayer. You are what you are, and I should have not tried to make you something else. Can you forgive me? I forgive you, Jamel, but the fault is mine as well. I should have not done what I knew was not wise. But none of this helps us now. Just then, a loud banging at the door. Ahmed sighed. See, the king's men already. He went to the door and unbolted it, calling. All right, all right, I know why you're here. He swung the door open. To his astonishment, he saw 40 men kneeling before him 
and touching their heads to the ground again and again. Of course you know, O great soothsayer, said the chief. Nothing can be hidden from you, but we beg you not to give us away. Bewildered though he was, Ahmed realized that these must be the thieves. He thought fast and said, Very well, I won't turn you in, but you must replace every bit of the treasure. At once, at once, cried the chief. And before the night was through, forty pairs of hands carried forty chests of gold and jewels back into the king's treasury. Early the next morning, Ahmed appeared before the king. Your Majesty, my magic arts can find either the treasure or the thieves, but not both. Which do you choose? The treasure, I suppose, said the king. Though it's a pity not to get the thieves, the boiling oil is all ready for them. Well, never mind. Tell me where the treasure is, and I'll send my men right away. No need, your majesty. Ahmed waved his arms in the air and called, Pish Posh, Wish Wash, Mish Mosh. Then he announced, By magic, the chests have returned to their place. The king himself went with Ahmed to the treasury and found it so. You are truly the greatest fortune teller of the age, he declared. From this day forth, you shall be my royal soothsayer. Thank you, your majesty, said Ahmed with a bow. But I'm afraid that's impossible. Finding and restoring your treasure was so difficult, it used up all my powers. I shall never be a soothsayer again. What a loss, cried the king. Then I must doubly reward you. Here, take two of these chests for your own. So Ahmed returned home to Jamal, safe, rich, and a good deal wiser. And as any soothsayer could have foretold, they lived happily ever after. The story you just heard is a classic folktale in that part of the country. I think it's become a classic because it has so many of the elements that thrill us. I mean, let's count them. It has crime, check, fortunes, check, deceit, a rags to riches story, and most of all, it has a couple that stays together in the end. It's like the perfect formula for a Hollywood movie. I'll have more thoughts on this motif at the end of the episode, but I want to get you right along to the next story. This next story was written by a legendary author of short stories. He was an American who went by the pen name of O. Henry and published this story back in 1903. It also has a character who pretends to be something he's not and might actually get away with it, except for a dilemma he's faced with. You'll see what I mean. The story is called A Retrieved Reformation. In 
In the prison shoe shop, Jimmy Valentine was busy at work making shoes. A prison officer came into the shop and led Jimmy to the prison office. There, Jimmy was given an important paper. It said that he was free. He had been sent to prison to stay for four years. He had been there for ten months. But he had expected to stay only three months. See, Jimmy Valentine had many friends outside the prison. A man with so many friends does not expect to stay in prison long. Valentine, said the prison officer, you'll go out tomorrow morning. This is your chance. Make a man of yourself. You're not a bad fellow at heart. Stop breaking safes open and live a better life. Me, said Jimmy in surprise. I never broke open a safe in my life. Oh no, how about that bank in Springfield, the chief prison officer laughed. You criminals, I tell you, you're all the same. You deny, 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 even when all the evidence points towards you. Me, Jimmy said. His face still showed a surprise. I was never in Springfield in my life. The next morning at seven, Jimmy was back in front of the chief prison officer. He was given some new clothes that didn't fit him properly and the customary amount of money which was just enough to get him to the nearest city. That was the end of Valentine, prisoner 9762. Jimmy walked out of prison and into the sunshine. Once outside, he spent no time admiring the birds or the trees. He simply got on the train, and three hours later got off the train in a small town. Here in this small town, he went to the restaurant of Mike Dolan. Mike Dolan was alone there. After shaking hands, he said, I'm sorry you couldn't do it sooner, Jimmy, my boy. Feeling all right? Fine, said Jimmy. Is my room waiting for me? His room was indeed waiting for him, just as he left it. His bed was against the wall, and after moving the bed, he opened a small secret door in the wall. From the small door, he pulled out a dust-covered bag containing his special safe-cracking tools. They were complete. Everything he needed was in there. He had ordered these tools to be custom-made for him. They were one of one and had cost him a fortune. See, a grade-A robber like Jimmy needed grade-A tools like these. In half an hour, Jimmy went downstairs and through the restaurant. He was now dressed in good clothes that fit him well. He carried with him his bag of tools. Do you have anything planned? asked Mike Dolan. Me? asked Jimmy as if surprised. Well, I don't understand. I work for the New York famous bread and cake makers company, and I sell the best bread and cake in the country. Mike enjoyed these words and let out a pleasant laugh. A week after Valentine, prisoner 9762 left the prison, a safe was broken open in Richmond, Indiana. No one knew who did it. Two weeks after that, a safe in Logansport was opened. It was a new kind of safe. It had been made, they said, so strong that no one could break it open. But someone did, and took a lot of money. Then a safe in Jefferson City was opened. 
more money was taken from this one. Ben Price was a cop who worked on important cases, and now he began to work on this one. He went to Richmond, Indiana, and to Logansport to see how the safe breaking had been done in those places. He was heard to say, I can see that Jim Valentine has been here. He's in business again. I mean, look at the way he opened this one. Everything easy, everything clean. He's the only man who has the tools to do it. And he is the only man who knows how to use tools like this. Yes, I want Mr. Valentine. Next time he goes to prison, he's going to stay there until his time is finished. Ben Price knew how Jimmy worked. Jimmy would go from one city to another far away. He always worked alone. He always left quickly when he was finished. For all these reasons, it was not easy to catch Mr. Valentine. People with safes full of money were glad to hear that Ben Price was the one at work trying to catch Mr. Valentine. One afternoon, Jimmy Valentine and his bag arrived in a small town named Elmore. Jimmy, looking as young as a college boy, walked down the street toward the hotel. A young lady walked across the street, passed him at the corner, and entered a door. Over the door was a sign that read, The Elmore Bank. Jimmy Valentine looked into her eyes, forgetting at once what he was. He became another man. She looked away, blushing. Young men like Jimmy did not appear often in Elmore. Jimmy saw a boy near the bank door and began to ask questions about the town. After a time, the young lady came out and went on her way. She seemed not to see Jimmy as she passed him. And who is that? asked Jimmy to the boy. Oh, well, she's Annabelle Adams. Her father owns this bank. Jimmy then went to the hotel where he said his name was Ralph D. Spencer. He got a room there. He told the hotel man he had come to Elmore to go into business. How was the shoe business? Was there already a good shoe shop? Yes, Elmore needed a good shoe shop, said the hotel man. There was no shop that sold just shoes. All business in Elmore was good. Mr. Spencer said that he would stay in the town a few days and learn something about it. Now, fast forward to a year later. Mr. Ralph Spencer stayed in Elmore. He started a shoe shop, and business was good. He was liked around town, and he was engaged to his love interest, Annabel Adams. Mr. Adams, the small town banker, liked Spencer. Annabel was very proud of him. He seemed already to belong to the family. One day, Jimmy sat down in his room to write this letter which he sent to one of his old friends. Dear old friend, I want you to meet me at Sullivan's place next week on the evening of the 10th. I want to give you my tools. I know you'll be glad to have them. You couldn't buy them for $10,000. I finished with the old business a year ago. I'm a reformed man and I'm going to marry the best girl on earth two weeks from now. I won't ever again touch another man's money. After I marry, I'm going to go further west where I'll never see anyone who knew me in my old life. I tell you, 
She's a wonderful girl. She trusts me. Your old friend, Jimmy. On the Monday night after Jimmy sent this letter, Ben Price, the cop, arrived quietly in Elmore. He moved slowly about the town in his quiet way, and he learned all that he wanted to know. Standing inside a shop, he watched Ralph D. Spencer walk by. So you're gonna marry the banker's daughter, are you, Jimmy? said Ben to himself. I don't feel so sure about that. The next morning, Jimmy was at the Adams' home. He was going to a nearby city that day to buy new clothes for the wedding and a gift for Annabelle. It would be his first trip out of Elmore. It was more than a year now since he had done any safe breaking. Most of the Adams family went to the bank together that morning. There was Mr. Adams, Annabelle, Jimmy, and Annabelle's married sister with her two little girls aged five and nine. They passed Jimmy's hotel and Jimmy ran up quickly to his room and brought along his bag. Then they went to the bank. The Elmore Bank had a new safe. Mr. Adams was very proud of it, and he wanted everyone to see it. It was as large as a small room, and it had a very special door. The door was controlled by a clock. Using the clock, the banker planned the time when the door should open. At other times, no one, not even the banker himself, could open it. He explained about it to Mr. Spencer. Mr. Spencer seemed interested, but he did not seem to understand very easily. The two children, May and Agatha, enjoyed seeing the shining heavy door with all its special parts. While they were busy playing around, Ben Price entered the bank and looked around. He told a young man who worked there that he had not come on business. He was waiting for a man. Suddenly, there was a cry from the women. They had not been watching the children. May, the nine-year-old girl, had playfully closed the door of the safe, and Agatha was inside. The old banker tried to open the door. He pulled at it for a moment. The door can't be opened, he cried. And the clock! I hadn't started it yet. Agatha's mom cried out again. Quiet, quiet, said Mr. Adam, raising a shaking hand. All be quiet for a moment. Agatha, he called as loudly as he could. Listen to me. They could hear, but not clearly, the sound of the child's voice. In the darkness inside the safe, she was wild with fear. My baby, her mother cried. She will die of fear. Open the door, break it open. Can't you men do something? There isn't a man nearer than the city who can open that door, said Mr. Adams in a shaking voice. My God, Spencer, what shall we do with that child? She can't live long in there. There isn't enough air. And the fear, the fear will kill her. Agatha's mother, wild too now, beat on the door with her hands. Annabelle turned to Jimmy, her large eyes full of pain, but with some hope too. A woman thinks that the man she loves can somehow do anything. Can't you do something, Ralph? Try, won't you? He looked at her with a strange, soft smile on his lips and in his eyes.
Annabelle, he said. Give me that flower you're wearing, will you? She put the flower in his hand. Jimmy took it and put it where he could not lose it. Then he pulled off his coat. With that act, Ralph D. Spencer passed away, and Jimmy Valentine took his place. Stand away from the door, all of you, he commanded. He put his bag on the table and opened it flat. From that time on, he seemed not to know that anyone else was near. Quickly, he laid the shining strange tools on the table. The others watched as if they had lost the power to move. In a minute, Jimmy was at work on the door. In ten minutes, faster than he had ever done it before, he had the door open. Agatha was taken into her mother's arms. Jimmy Valentine put on his coat, picked up the flower, and walked toward the front door. As he went, he thought he heard a voice call, Ralph! He did not stop. At the door, a big man stood in his way. Hello, Ben, said Jimmy, still with his strange smile. You're here at last, are you? Let's go. I don't care now. And then Ben Price acted rather strangely. I guess you're wrong about this, Mr. Spencer, he said. I don't believe I know you, do I? And then Ben Price turned and walked slowly down the street. The story you just heard, Retrieved Reformation, has left a lasting legacy and been influenced by other works of literature. The first one that comes to mind is the novel and play Les Miserables, which has the character Jean Valjean being chased throughout his life by the same inspector. But overall, the motif of someone who dons a false identity is one of the most common plot starters in books, plays, and movies. I think it's because of our innermost need to demand the truth from others, except when we're the ones who need to lie to get our own way, well, that sense of justice pretty much disappears. It also goes back to our childhood dreams of being a superhero or an astronaut, a king, a queen, or princess. When we're young, pretending is the best use of our imagination. Not only do we want Kurt Vonnegut's quote to be true, we need it to be true. No matter who you are, you're not stuck being the you that was born. Thanks to the mysteriousness and the ambiguity of the world that we live in, we often are what we pretend to be. Thank you guys for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much or maybe even more, hopefully, as I enjoyed making it. Even if it took you a couple sittings to finish the whole thing. I know it was a longer one. But I also want to thank you for all the support with this new show. The feedback has been incredible and super, 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 super motivating. 
We'll be back next week with another, hopefully, great episode. My name is Alex Suspides, and this has been another episode of Rendition. Thanks for listening. <laughs>